Welcome back to the Snowmobile Podcast. This is your host, Gordon Van. Today's guest is Steve Brand from TechRider. TechRider, otherwise known as uh, TechVest. You may have seen this product. It's upper body protection used by snowmobilers and motorcyclists at, uh, during competition. And uh, the TechVest is uh, now being uh, used uh, quite extensively in uh, trail riders. Uh, I, I use it myself. I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't ride without it. It's a. Uh, it's a fantastic product. Uh, you know, you can go through uh, helmets and boots and suits and snowmobiles and uh, and uh, tech vest is, is one product that uh, will last you for uh, a long time. So first, here's a message from Craig Nicholson, the Intrepid Snowmobiler. And remember, you can follow us on Facebook at Snowmobile Podcast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. Just click the button, subscribe, and all the uh, past episodes are on there too. And um, you can follow us on SoundCloud. When you do that, all the other episodes are, uh, are on SoundCloud too. So hope you enjoy these episodes. I really enjoy uh, bringing them to you. So here's Craig Nicholson, the Intrepid Snowmobiler. Hello, I'm Craig Nicholson, the Intrepid Snowmobiler, here to go snowmobiling with the Ontario Federation of Snowmobile Clubs. Never embark on a snowmobile ride without taking emergency and survival gear because the unexpected can happen anytime. Before the season, I pack a basic kit and leave it in my sled all winter so it's continually with me if needed. And I always carry a satellite phone or a tracking unit. Until next time, find out more at IntrepidSnowmobiler.com. That's IntrepidSnowmobiler.com. Okay, on the line with me today, uh, I'm happy to have a, a good, good, good friend of mine, uh, Steve Brand from Tech Rider. Uh, Steve, as you uh, probably you know, he he hangs out at the, the races a lot. Um, um, very uh, very passionate about uh, about racing. Um, his background, uh, you know, has uh, got a lot of racing uh, resume. So, uh, Steve, want to thank you for coming on, talking about your uh, your career in snowmobiling, and um, how are you doing today? Uh, great, Gord. Uh, yeah, and, and thanks for the opportunity to to talk. It's it's been a while since we last met, and uh, appreciate the opportunity. Well, um, uh, you used to be, uh, you know, <laughs> seen a lot at the races, uh, you know, with uh, your, your tech vest. You know, you, you were always uh, talking to all the racers, you know, about the product. And uh, I, I know you're you're very uh, very passionate about the, the tech vest, and you're, you know, you, you like to improve upon it all the time and uh, make make little uh, changes and. Uh, you know, you're, you're always uh, interested in the feedback that the racers have, but let's let's go back. Um, 1970s. Um, I guess you you began your your snowmobile career. T- tell us uh, how you began. Uh, my first ride on a sled was in 1968. Um, I was in lived in a town called Dundas. It was a snowy day, probably about this time of year, and. I was out at the end of my driveway, and uh, the snowmobile goes by. So, uh, you know, then he came back down the road, and I waved him down, and uh, he let me take it out for a spin. I, it would probably be a 68 Olympic single. You know, uh, it was, was kind of cool, and that's what really first uh, first caught my attention. Uh, we go back to 68. Yeah, and uh, when did you begin snowmobiling yourself, like uh, purchase your, your first sled or, uh, or uh, really become involved with, uh, with snowmobiles? Well, you know what? I, I actually rented a sled. I rented in 1970. I rented a Rep 15 horsepower up in Huntsville, and we put it in a, uh, in a box trailer and took it out to Oxtongue Lake. and And uh, I was with a, a scout group, and uh, uh, we we played with that thing for for two days. That was our first real exposure. Um, the first sled I ever bought was a <clears throat> couple years later in 1973. Bought a uh, 72 340 TNT um, and, and put on about 1,500 miles back then, um, a couple sets 
sets of pistons or one track, uh, a few drive belts, that sort of thing. So first sled I ever owned myself was a was a '72 340 uh, TNT. Yeah. So you now you're you're, you're interested in snowmobiling at, at at this point. Um, but what a lot of people probably don't know about you is uh, that you were very involved with the, in, in the military, uh, you know, as, as, a, as a reservist, and uh, uh, you you had a long, uh, you know, career in uh, in, the, in the military. So you were you were you were oh, you started uh, in the military in the, in the 70s, is that correct? And uh, and you were also you know starting obviously snowmobiling and your interest in snowmobiling at that time. Talk about your 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 your, your interest in, in in the military and uh, and snowmobiling at the same time. Well, there there were two careers that ran parallel. Um, in the Army's case, I was in for 40 years. I started in 1970 as a private soldier with the Royal Hamilton Light Infantry. And uh, 15 years later, um, I joined the Queen's Own Rifles, downtown Toronto unit, uh, to do the airborne parachute tasking and uh, went on to command that unit and uh, served a total of 40 years. Um, retired as a lieutenant colonel. Uh, did two operational tours, 2004 to uh, Sierra Leone, a country in West Africa, and then 2009 I spent a year in uniform and went to uh, Afghanistan for for nine months. So all of this was happening, you know, in parallel in the background to everything else that I did on Civvy Street with with uh, snowmobiles and, and motorcycles. Uh, uh, looking back at it, I don't know how I managed to fit everything in. <laughs> yeah, you, yeah, I've looked at your resume. You, you, a lot of it does parallel, and uh, you know, we, we we would often see you at uh, you know in in the nineties and uh, you know at, at snowmobile events, and then you uh, you would be on on some kind of tour or something. I remember your the last tour you did, uh, the, the big one was in Afghanistan. Um, you, you kind of you had your you had your company at the time, and you kind of left to to do that that last tour. Is that correct? Well, yeah, for for both tours, uh, you know, I was still growing tech rider, so I basically took a bit of a sabbatical for about ten years uh, from, away from tech rider and focused on on the military aspect of things. So uh, it um, um, you know didn't allow me to uh, spend a lot of time on new product development with with uh, tech rider, and but you know I retired. I was retired in 2010. I was prepared to serve longer, but at that point in the military, in my career, you're blocking younger guys who want to climb up the ladder. So. It was time for me to leave. So since 2010, now I've devoted my energies back to uh, TechRider, and uh, we've got a you know, whole slate of new products uh, in the hopper here, and we're going to start uh, uh, giving them some public exposure this winter for uh, for a fall release. Yeah. Uh, now, obviously, the military equipment and and the likes. Um, do you see any you know uh, resemblance to? Snowmobile equipment, um, as far as safety is concerned. Well, uh, you know, the military and snowmobiles, motorcycles are, are both helmet sports. So yeah, we have, a Kev- but the Kevlar-based helmet we, we use in the military really wouldn't have be t- too comfortable, no practical for snowmobiling. <laughs> and uh, the upper body protective gear I wore in Afghanistan, you know, that's a PPE, personal. Protective equipment, that whole suite uh, with weapon was about 50 pounds. So, I, I, you know, at five pounds, a tech vest is considered too heavy by some some of the younger racers. So, uh, yeah, they they both have uh, protective equipment, which I've worn for years. Uh, but uh, the military stuff is uh, certainly a lot uh, heavier, not as comfortable as as what we build for for snow. You must have got some ideas, though. You know, uh, you know, basically fit and you know, comfort 
you know, with, 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 the, with the tech fest, uh, you know, to some degree, I, I would suspect. Well, um, yes, and, and probably more so on, on pockets and buckles and the quality of, of the subcomponents because the military is pretty tough on equipment. So, you know, I, I've always had a uh, learned from that experience and, and had a, a respect for, for, for top quality components, which is transferred to, to the tech fest. I mean, we have very few uh, failures, I'd say. You know, this is, you know, year 19 for the tech fest, and I probably haven't even had 100 uh, product returns in that period of time. And, you know, that can't be said for other companies in the, in the outerwear snowmobile business. I mean, uh, we, we upgrade everything, and we source domestically to ensure quality and consistency. Yeah. Okay, so, so so during that that, that time, you um, in, in the seventies, you you began a career in the in the snowmobile and recreational divisions of uh, you know for uh, motorcycles and, and snowmobiles. Uh, talk to us about uh, about that. Yeah, my my first job in inside the industry was when I went to college in Peterborough. I worked part time for Hickson Sports Distributing, which was a, a we called them jobbers back then, and, and you know my job was to go around and and sell um, snowmobile accessories parts uh, to dealers in, in southern Ontario. So I was a, you know, I've been a road warrior for, uh, since day one. And uh, when I uh, completed my college uh, degree, which was in recreational vehicles and marina management in Peterborough in 77, and uh, I applied for a job uh, with um, uh, Arctic Arctic Sports Products in the Scorpion division. So my first OEM job was with the Scorpion Snowmobiles, 77 to 79. In 79, um, the market was changing, and Arctic Cat actually went out of business that year, and our paychecks were starting to bounce. So uh, it was time to, to move along, and uh, a previous boss at Arctic Cat named Dean Allen had moved to Bombardier, uh, and... Uh, he put a word in for me, and uh, next thing you know, I was interviewed by Darcy Chenet in 1979. I moved over to Bombardier, and I, where I started my career as a motor ski sales rep in Southern Ontario, visiting dealers, and also took over um, all of the Can-Am motorcycle uh, sales and race support for for uh, Bombardier. Yeah, um, go back to to, to the, the Articat Scorpion thing. There, there, I mean, there was a there was you know. Several hundred, you know, snowmobiles in the in the uh, manufacturers, um, you know, small manufacturers, big manufacturers, and they, they slowly dwindled down. Uh, you mentioned the you know the Articat going, you know, out of out of business in the in, in that time frame. What 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 do you think happened with that? It was just tight competition in in, in that time frame. Like the Articat was was one of the main survivors of of all those, you know. Manufacturers. Yeah, well, Arctic certainly survived the seventies, and I mean, I, I'm pretty certain they got up into almost number two in market share uh, position. But you know, the late seventies, the bubble, the first bubble in the snowmobile business was was bursting. We we ended up with uh, subsequently with three or four bad years of winter, and and I, I don't know all the circumstances between you know behind Arctic's uh, you know financial. Collapse, but uh, you know they weren't the only ones. So you know it was a time of transition, and you know the uh, those that survived, uh, you, know, uh, you know, probably in '79 there might have been down to 12 
12 manufacturers, I don't you know, recall exactly. And uh, you, you say you, you went, you came on with uh, with with Skidoo, uh, but um, also with with Can-Am motorcycles. Uh, anybody that knows you knows that you're also an avid uh, motorcyclist. Uh, um, how how were those years in the in the, the early years of Can-Am? Well, Can-Am's first production model was '73. Um, as a consumer, the TNT, I, I bought one myself in '75. That was my first year. Uh, of riding Enduros. In fact, my first Enduro was the two-day championship uh, called the Corduroy here in Halberton County, and that, that's actually what um, prompted me uh, eventually to move up here uh, by a cottage, and I've lived here full-time ever since. So the Cord was my was my gateway to, to um, living here and working in, in, in Halberton County. Um, Can-Ams were, were very dominant here in Ontario and across Canada, Back then, and dominated the enduro scene. Um, they went through several evolutions. Um, when I got there in '79, um, they were in the final two years of being produced in Valcor. In 1980 uh, was the last year for Can-Am. Then it was resurrected by Jeff Smith uh, via Armstrong Motorcycles in, in England, and Can-Am stayed around until 1987. At which time um, it, it was canceled by uh, by a head office. Yeah, oh, those are those are exciting years here because motocross was doing really well too, and and uh, Canam had quite a very good motocross team at that time. Uh, uh, Jim Ellis and um, uh, who was the other uh, rider at the time? Uh, they had a, had a really nice team. Uh, yeah, they uh, <laughs> well, there was one, two, three. Like Marty Trikes was in there. Right. Um, um, Gary Jones. So the, the, you know they hired the top guys and and they produced the results. Uh, and we got a big flash, but you know the press has always been uh, the press, which the motorcycle dirt press, which is basically SoCal, Southern California based, was always always very hard on Can-Ams, and you know Jeff Smith was um, was kind of feisty. So um, you know they were tough years. Uh, motocross reviews were were not favorable, uh, but you know. Uh, the main sales for Can-Ams were enduro cross country, and that's where we did excel here. And you know, we had top riders like Ross Lennox, who multi-time champion on the Can-Ams, and, and Blair Sharpless, uh, who who succeeded Ross. Uh, you know, really put Can-Am on the map in Canada. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember the Sharpless, the Sharpless name. Yeah. Um, okay, so um, the, the, you were in the motorcycle, then then you. You progressed into um, more or less a, a, a directory you know, position with with Skidoo. Um, you know, you're interested in racing at this time. Um, did did you request to become a, a race manager of in in that time frame? No, it it, it, it sort of happened later. Basically, in 1989, you know, um, after 10 years uh, as a district sales manager dealing with dealers and stuff. Um, Nine, those who know me know it was no secret that the 89 Mach 1, which was advertised as the fastest thing on snow, um, in fact wasn't. And, you know, I kind of took it personal and I just didn't want to be part of an organization that at that time stuck their head in the sand and ignored it. So I, I turned in my resignation and um, uh, with Darcy Chenier, which was difficult, but it was time for me to move on because I had no longer had faith in, 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 the, in the product or the process at, at that point in time. 
uh, at that point in time, Skidoo was being managed by too much by, by bean counters and non-snowmobilers, and you know, the product was 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 failing in, in the marketplace, um, and, and it shouldn't have been. But you know, I was young then, and uh, you know, pretty assured that uh, you know, I'd bounce back and do something else. Well, uh, you know, I wasn't out of there for a couple of weeks, uh, and then I got a call from from Valcor through uh, the new president at the time named Tony Kelhawk, and um, and uh, he reached out through a senior engineer there named by the name of Claude Picard, and next thing you know. Um, I'm hired uh, on contract to work for uh, our R&D marketing uh, right out of Valcor. So I was basically flying under the radar for two or three years. And uh, one of my projects was the was to work on the, what's now called the Summit Mountain Sleds. I was the field marketing kind of guy point, point there and also for the Grand Touring platform. And at the same time, I wrote a wrote an internal paper suggesting that Skidoo would be uh, its interests would be furthered by uh, getting into cross country terrain racing. At that time, the um, the I five hundred was big news, and you know the the motto was "Win on Sunday, sell on Monday." And uh, the Skidoo, Skidoo's were not able to to uh, finish uh, the events of the day back then. They were, you know, lots of breakdowns. Um, you know, the, the 1989 Formula Plus 500, I think 13 started, and none of them even made it to the first gas. So they all broke down. So at that point in time, Skidoo was fixated on oval racing, and you know, by 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 you know the late 80s, early 90s, you know, Skidoo's were racing Skidoo's. So it, it, it you know. And it, uh, they weren't learning anything technically. I, you know, there's there's very few technical advances that, that transferred from oval racing to to uh, to consumer sleds. But on the other hand, Polaris and Cat were 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 learning the lessons and transferring those to production. You know, their their warranty rates were a lot lot lower um, than than the skidoos of the day. So cross country, in my opinion, was a way to uh, improve the sled. And uh, reduce warranty costs, increase customer loyalty, and increase market share. So Skidoo, um, and I got a call from Claude one day. Said, "Hey, your 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 program's been accepted. Um, and by the way, uh, we'd like you to run it." <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. So how how long the time frame was that? Was that a few months? Uh, six months? Um, uh, I started I started in uh, in uh, 1990. Um, first, first thing I did in '90 was I went right down to the I-500 and I uh, followed that as a just as an observer, took notes, data, had a radar gun, um, you know, just doing background work. Followed a couple of cross-country races. At that point, there was no such thing as snowcross. Snowcross didn't come in until um, 1992 at Spirit Mountain. So 90, uh, 91, I actually rode the, the I-500 to get seat of the pants uh, uh, feedback and, and data. Where were you riding? Um, uh, 91, I rode uh, an MXX, okay. uh, a very uh, pretty rare sled. Most people have forgotten about it because it was just a one-year wonder. And um, that, you know... Finishing that race was was quite the task, and I wouldn't have done it without the assistance of uh, the likes of Gerard Carpick and and uh, Fast and, and and Larry Wilson from Orangeville. 
how many how many uh, of those MX uh, X's uh, and maybe uh, maybe MX's uh, would would have been in that event? Um, the ninety one I five hundred there was probably overall there was three hundred entries um, each year. Um, I would say there was thirty. 32, 35 skidoos started, and only seven finished. Yeah. And six of those finishers, me being one of the riders, were the guys that chose to stick with um, advice that had been um, funneled through to me uh, uh, from Gerard Carpick. Um, we had a lot of work to do uh, to get those sleds ready to go uh, and, and to even finish. So you've seen a lot of importance of the feedback from... Uh Really racing to to you know make a make a sled that uh, you know competed uh, in, in in that event uh, um, through through that manufacturer. Well, the idea was you know to to educate the senior management at Bombardier that the lessons learned on cross country racing could uh, be directly applied to future design and uh, reduce uh, the warranty costs, uh, reduce manufacturing costs. And increase uh, customer loyalty. So those those were those were the main points, and you know we we clearly achieved that because in, um, I came public uh, in '92. Uh, we were still working on everything in '92. Actually, I got a chance to ride the Hurricana, which was you know an R and D project. Uh, I had a great boss. He let me do some riding, so <laughs> I'll never com- I'll never complain about that. Yeah. That's a, that was that was a tough event too. That, that that's the one where uh, you know a lot of them, the the Euros came over. The, you know, famous Euros, Euros uh, you know, Formula One car racers uh, came over for that event. And uh, I'm not sure how they, if I recall, how how they made out, uh, if if they liked it or not. But uh, that was a tough event. Uh, yeah, it was a, certainly the longest time I've been in the saddle. Longest days, ten days. Uh, you know, generally always off road, and, and three of us, and you know, I was. I was anointed the guy who had to pull the trailer, so that was another level of difficulty. But yeah, when you when you mentioned those uh, those Euro hot shots, boy, they were yeah a pretty flamboyant bunch. But uh, uh, I think uh, most of them were gone by like day two. Uh, I, I clearly remember a couple of them just you know pushing us out of the way to to pass and get to the front, and then you know a couple miles later, there's there's you know, somebody wadded up in a tree or somebody out stuck in the in the ditch. I clearly remember one where a guy hit a, a jump so high, he, he jumped blind, hit a tree, and his hood ended up getting stuck in the tree as the, the sled fell down in 10 feet of snow. And they they did a real, uh, really a spectacular uh, European garage sale. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. I, I, can't, re- I can't recall the, uh, the, the Formula One race. There was, I think there was a couple of them, but there was a couple of Formula One car racers in that event, uh, you know, probably for publicity. Um, but uh, I, you know, but uh, it, it was an interesting uh, concept. Uh, it lasted a couple of years, and uh, and then it, it, uh, that, that race kind of went away. But uh, so 1992, uh, it looks it looks like Skidoo's getting your uh, your, your message, and um, you're you know North American race manager uh, for cross country and snowcross at the time. And then we're starting to see some results, um, you know, in, in and in North America too, because you you had a couple of. Uh, uh, North American racers, uh, Todd Wolf beat one, and um, um, the, the other one, uh, I'm thinking of Chip Audi. He was on a, he was on a few at the time too, was he not? Um, well, Chip yeah. came in. Uh, I could back up a little bit because um, we had the national level uh, programs. First of all, I was appointed in 
just in time for heydays 92. For the 93 season, I was appointed as the cross-country uh, snowcross race manager for North America. And uh, I had to pick up the program that was already running at that point. Uh, basically, Todd Wolf was the main guy who was a, a, a connection that was, you know, these talents spotted by Gerard Carpick and recommended to the race department. And Todd began um, basically as the first pro rider uh, with, the, with the 93 uh, MXZ, one with a fiberglass hood, fiberglass parts all over. Um, and we debuted at the at the, uh, at the Duluth race in 1993. Uh, there was like a dozen sleds there, and you know Todd managed to make a final. That was that was quite an achievement because the the sleds needed a lot of work. So Todd and his mechanic Bob were just uh, experts at, uh, at keeping the things together and and maximizing the speed advantages and the handling, which you know we were not front of the pack in speed nor handling, but you know Todd's. Todd's perseverance with Bob uh, working their inches. Uh, they put uh, Skidoo on the map, uh, you know, the first day of, of, of uh, Spirit there. I can't remember if it was a Friday or Saturday, and I'm sitting in the stands there, sort of non-discreet. Nobody knew what was going on as far as Skidoo's factory effort. And I, I clearly remember people calling uh, the Skidoo's mustard tubs. It was, a, it was a pretty derogatory comments, and uh, I was, was quite taken aback by that, you know. But by the end of the weekend, um, um, you know, they were calling them mustard missiles because Todd was able to uh, you know, make it to the final. And uh, shortly after that, uh, started 94 is when Tori Hiking came on board, and that's what really accelerated uh, Skidoo's profile and the whole sport of snowcross because, you know, there's probably... He's the single most important guy to uh, hit the snow cross tracks. He's long been forgotten by by younger folks, of course, and you know it's all Blair Morgan and Tucker Hibbert. But Tony's the first guy who really pushed the envelope and dragged dragged the sport from sit down, uh, small you know, moguls, you know, TT style race into full blown motocross. Um, uh, racing style, stand-up riding, and, you know, all boats rise with the tide, and because of Tony's efforts, uh, all riders uh, picked up the game, and sleds got better and better. How did how did uh, the Tony Heikkinen deal come come to fruition? Um, uh, he was he was obviously racing um, in, in Europe at, at, at the time. Um, who made the who made the call? Was it was it Skidoo or was it Gerard, Gerard that brought, first brought him over? No, it was it was Gerard um, uh, who had a, uh, you know the King Carpet himself, who's you know his his his, his racing history alone would you know fill hours. Uh, but but Gerard at that point was uh, was uh, uh, working um, M10 and uh, behind the scenes and de- developing fast and had a racing association with Skidoo after his many years of racing. He moved into his Evelyn-based uh, business with his with his brothers, and he was uh, on very good terms and spent a lot of time in Sweden because Sweden was all and Finland were always you know, well ahead of us in in handling and terrain setups and things like that. And the key player over there was a guy named Bo Strandberg. And uh, through through Bo's uh, contacts, Gerard uh, discovered um, 
um, writers like Krister Johansson, who came over here for a brief period of time, and of course uh, Tony Hyken. And so you'd have to give the the the, the tip that I had to Gerard for for all these talent spotting. You know, Todd Wolf, Tony Hyken, and Krister Johansson. And uh, that's what really uh, uh, started Skidoo's role in the early 90s that positioned um, Skidoo for an increase in, uh, in racing wins, reputation, reliability, and that, that was the key starting point for Skidoo's run to number one, and, you know, when the rev was launched in 03. So they weren't, uh, Skidoo was not an overnight success. It took about uh six to eight years to really get corporately committed to building a sled that could win the I-500 and sell on the showroom floor. When, uh, when, when Tony was winning and, and, and Todd, uh, you know, in the, in the, the early nineties, uh, what was, uh, what was Skidoo's uh, feeling on, on, on snowcross racing? Were, were they, were they like full on board? Uh, Cause oval racing was still pretty, was doing pretty good still. Um, snowcross and, and cross country racing was was coming was starting. What, what was Skidoo's uh, you know in, impression of, of you know this the European coming over you know winning in a very short time? Todd Wolf winning on, on the Skidoo. You know did they jump on board real real quick and say okay yeah you're right we got to go this direction? Yeah, it, well, you know success breeds uh, breeds interest and bigger budgets, and that's exactly what what happened. And at that time. We we split because if you go back to early '90s, snowcross hadn't hadn't kicked in yet. You had the first Spirit Mountain in '92, and um, you know a bit of interest there. But it was all about winning the I-500, you know, which was the successor to the Winnipeg St. Paul. Um, it was all about cross country because you know Skidoo wanted to dominate uh, in Polaris and Articat's backyard, uh, with, you know, which was basically the you know, state of Minnesota, which was I-500. So. At that time, um, it, it was uh, much easier to get calls returned and, and ask and ask for and receive budgets because we had some winning. I mean, Todd was making big points in the I-500 and the whole ISOC uh, racing series of the day, and, and Tony uh, split off and then just did the snowcross thing. So everything grew, but snowcross is more spectator, more TV friendly, and you know, snowcross really uh, took a a big leap in, in numbers, you know, late nineties and, you know, it's still out there, uh, still dominating, uh, uh, the press and, you know, getting CB, you know, CB, uh, CBS TV coverage for spirit mountain a couple of weeks back. So it, it's still, uh, quite successful and attracting lots of families and all the other, um, regional circuits, including, you know, our home circuit, uh, CSRA, uh, you know, are still, um, or, you know, some cases we're watching third generations of a family now out there on the starting line. So it's uh, it's still it's still a strong aspect of the sport and one that uh, any keen manufacturer should always keep an eye on. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the, I'm I'm sure the the, the learning curve for uh, developing a sled um, was was pretty pretty steep in that time. You know. Um, you you remained a t- team manager for a, a few years uh, with 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 Skidoo, um, and you know really really led the charge. You know I, I'd be safe to say that you led the charge to really getting to, to you know Skidoo's uh, feet in the in the snowcross and cross country uh, racing. Um, how how was it, how was it uh, you know in those early years you know you know <laughs> to uh, to present all all your cases to Skidoo. Um, 
because um, it, it must have been you know quite a quite a change for their production sled at, at the time, and you know trying you know you know a steep learning curve for suspensions, engines, chassis. Was it easy to present your case? Uh, well, it was easy to present, but you know, I had a tough crowd because everybody was, you know, so infatuated with ovals, including the race department of the day. Yeah. I remember Old Chester and all those guys back in then. They they didn't care a bit about cross country. All they wanted to do was oval race. So, you know, I had to go in and make my case and try and relate what we wanted to do in train racing to to sales and and to uh, warranty reduction and and uh, customer loyalty. And um, if it hadn't been for Tony Kellogg, who had been appointed the president just a year before, and my direct boss, Claude Picard, none of this would have happened. Because at, at one point in time, Tony had to direct uh, subordinate staff to support cross-country. So the budgets were had to be cut from one area and given over to me. So, you know, there was there were some people who weren't happy with that, but... Um, I'll let, I'll let history speak for itself because Skidoo's number one position, which is substantial when compared to any other power sport industry, their market share right now is you know directly linked back to the successes of the cross country program and then in the 90s and the improvement in production techniques and 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 uh, quality of the sled. Now, now Gerard would have been pretty heavily involved with with you. Um, at, at that time, um, and he was he was uh, uh, you know in in Valcourt quite a bit at, at that time. Um, how was how was it working with Gerard? Uh, you know um, you know developing a, a new you know production sled for the for the consumer. Um, you know different from what from what uh, you know the, the previous uh, you know Skidoo's. Um, how, how was it working with Gerard? Well, at that time, Gerard's last. Uh... Uh, official connection on the product development side probably was at 91, maybe 92. Uh, at that point, uh, the M10 was launched, and he was busy doing all the race support and the pipes and uh, uh, everything out of Evola. So he, he had no lead role in any of the development. At that point, there was a bunch of uh, young engineers that were just starting, and I can basically remember... The first time, um, a guy named Bertrand Mallet uh, was a suspension guy in '92, '94, and I got to work with those guys out in the, in the R&D centers. And uh, so there was a batch of young engineers at that point in time who were, you know, recently graduated, had their laptops and stuff like that, and, and were were getting broken into putting their butt in the seat and getting out there and experiencing it. So there was a there was a new team there. There was a couple senior engineers, obviously, that had to show the way. But at that point, uh, you know, in 93, I didn't get any engineers coming out to watch uh, races. They would all go to stand in the VIP section at the Ovals. So um, uh, what, what happened there was Tony Kellogg basically told to some of the senior guys to get out there and smell the race fuel. So I... I you know, on several occasions, had senior engineers, middle middle rank engineers, out with me at the racetrack, and we didn't hang out in the in the in the VIP areas. We went out in the pits and looked at the family racing teams and looked at the sleds and you know smelled smelled the opportunity and you know smelled and you know visibly saw all the problems. So it was great. This was all before we had you know I could email pictures and stuff like that. Everything was done by fax and courier. You know, print off your photos, mark them. Shipping by courier to Valcor, so uh, the flash to bang, uh, you know, from information 
acquisition to transmission to the head office, you know, could sometimes be, you know, better part of a week. So um, it, it, they had to change their corporate culture. And it's, again, it's, I bring up Tony is the guy who is the game changer there and others get credit for Skidoo's return to number one. But, uh, you know, from my point of view, Tony Kelhock's the one that built, handled the turnaround, built the foundation and created the tipping point for Skidoo to go back to number one. And, you know, he's largely forgotten uh, by, by a lot of people. So I just, you know, wanted to make sure that his name is there for a record as well as Claude Picard, who was the, my direct engineer contact. Um, I, I, yeah, I remember. Uh, I remember uh, meeting you for the first time. Uh, it was at a, it was at a, a, a race in in New York. I can't recall the the snowcross event, uh, but uh, it was one of your your early years as as race manager. Ken and I uh, uh, went down there, and he was at the time, um, of course, scouting out the idea of uh, of starting the, the, the CSRA. And uh, you know, Todd Wolf was racing at that event, and. Uh, and um, it was, it was, it was, it was. You could, you could, you could almost. I recall now. It was just, it was just tense to see. You know, Todd was probably one, one or two of of the only skidoos in, in that event. And um, but, but you could tell that he was, uh, he was, uh, he was quite the racer and uh, struggling with it with a with a with a product that wasn't quite up to snuff. And uh, but things changed really quick. Um, I guess in 1993. Um, Tony Heikinen arrives on, on over, over here and, uh, and, and and really changes uh, changes racing and, and, and changes Skidoo really um, for the first time. Um, and uh, in, in Canada, we we seen our first uh, sight of, of, of Tony at the Mount St. Louis in uh, the first uh, CSRA race, and uh, you were there along with uh, I, I think Dave Carpick uh, for Tony's debut. Um, talk about talk about the, the, that uh, the, that kind of era, and and, and really I, I think. You know, to you know, start a snowcross in Canada for the CSRA. Well, in fact, you know, um, you know, you can. Your brother at that time was involved in, uh, you know, long-time oval racer, of course, and I think he was uh, organizing. Might have been organizing. Got his feet wet in uh, water, uh, personal watercraft racing, and maybe I think ATV racing. And and I I, phone, I phoned him and I said, look at this snowcross thing is going to be taking off and. You should come down and see one, and it might have been Haystack in Vermont. Yeah, I said that's that's the one. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And I and I told your brother to get get down there because you you got to see what Don Fink and his crew are doing here, and uh, because you know somebody needs to do this in Ontario, and if I wasn't the skidoo race manager, I'd probably start it up because this thing is going to get big. Yeah. And you know, and Ken came down and he came to my house one day in Minden, and we chatted about it, and he said, "Yeah, we're going to do it." So, you know, I I've got. Uh, from the Skidoo end, I, I got uh, support for him with contingency money and things like that, and uh, the rest is history. And you know, here's the CSRA; it's a senior senior race circuit, uh, longest continuous ownership of uh, probably any, well, certainly any snowcross um, uh, uh, association here in Canada, U.S. But uh, yeah. you know, what are we now? Your uh, first year for CSRA was '94, wasn't it? Over 20 years now. Over 20 years. Yeah. Now, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, it, it, a lot of a lot of the uh, the organizations have changed ownership. Uh, some of them, you know, uh, you know, three four times. But uh, yeah, the CSRA yep. CSRA has continued the same uh, same ownership, and uh, and still doing quite well. Um, yeah. So um, okay, so you know, and, and also in that time, um, you're you're still doing your military, <laughs> and you and you you've got a family <laughs> at home. Uh, busy times, 
Um, are, are, are you looking at changing, you know, um, occupations at that time? You know, you're, you're obviously thinking of a tech writer at, you know, at this time. What was the transformation from uh, race? Well, it, it, well, in, in '95, uh, Skidoo changed again, and um, they wanted me to uh, to move to Wausau, Wisconsin. Um, you know, and continue to do my work. Um, and I said, that's not in the cards for me. I had two, two young boys, Jeff and Kevin, and had property interests up here in Indian. And I said, it's, you know, it's, it's as sexy as it might sound to grab a green card and go down there. It wasn't for me. So at that point, we parted ways, and, and then Tom Rager took over and, you know, was there for the really big years when things really grew and did a good job at, uh, at taking Skidoo to the next level. So in 95, I came back here and, I had in my back of my mind for a couple of years that, you know, I saw guys getting hurt. Uh, you know, they were trying to wear motocross chest protectors, which don't cover the sides and don't uh, come down far enough for front or back. And at that same time, the ISR basically took the decision to, to ban motocross gear. So there was a there was a, a, a little window there for me to jump through. Uh, at that point, safe jack was all you could wear. Yeah. And... Um, so and I I had a safe jack. The first safe jack I had was 1977 when I rode the Winnipeg to St. Paul. So I had experience with it, and you know I knew it to be kind of uncomfortable because it was a rectangular, basic rectangular design, which was easier to build but not easier to ride with. Didn't have the comfort. So I uh, then at that point was introduced to my longtime designer Helm Helmut Seatman, and you know we. We spent two or three months uh, in a skunk works in Toronto and came up with the first uh, tech vest, which was launched uh, at heydays in 1996. And, you know, as they say, the rest is history, and we're, we're going to hit year 20 next year. Yeah. Um, so so the, 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 first, the first tech vest, uh, how, how many do you think have uh, versions have uh, come through since, since, since then? Uh, I know, I know you've been refining, refining, refining in front, refining. Um, can you can you think of how many <laughs> versions that you've uh, you've come up with? Well, right now in the catalog, we have like twenty different twenty different models. I mean, the race version itself has has morphed um, probably seven or eight times since nineteen ninety seven. And the debut race was at at Search Mountain Sault Saint Marie that year. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first first recorded uh, injury uh, that was uh, lessened by a tech vest was Dave Stevenson, who uh, in hot laps as a pro guy on his cat um, took a handlebar hit to the kidney and put a big dent in the very first tech vest in the very first hot laps of the very first heat race and had to be taken to the hospital. So there we are. If he'd been wearing motocross gear, there would have been no protection there. If I, internal damages. If, if I know you, you probably grabbed that uh, tech vest too, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, I had it right away and um, just wanted to inspect it, and it it performed well. And I think Dave came back on the Sunday and hobbled around the track, but uh, came back for uh, more days, as you recall. Dave was you know, yeah. always top top five and won a few races himself. A, a good good strong competitor from New York. Yeah, he, he was a, he was a you know a longtime competitor for CSRA uh, in the in the early years. Yeah, and I, I have to mention you touched on it earlier. Um, the racing efforts, uh, you know, we as race manager we we uh, contracted um, 
Chip Body and and um, and uh, um, Brent Herman. Um, yeah. And Brent was, of course, the number one on the Polaris for a number of years out there. One one tough rider, uh, good competitor, always a big smile, and so we we ended up hiring both of those guys and. They, you know, dominated out east, and they were great for feedback and great guys to work with. And, and uh, you know, Skidoo owes a lot of their presence on the on the east coast to the efforts of those two guys and and, and their teams. And you know, Brent was no stranger to injury and got recorded on on uh, TV there uh, getting hit from behind at one race, which was really ugly. Um, but you know, he walked away from it. So. Uh, I just wanted to throw those names in there, and, and some of the early guys that helped us were Dennis Dermis and, and, and uh, Lynn Falker, and down Colorado, and and uh, up in um, um, Alaska we had uh, Corey Conquest. Uh, there was a lot of dedicated uh, Skidoo guys back there that uh, worked hard. You know, and, and Gerard Carpick was part of that inner circle to keep these guys motivated and educated on latest setups and stuff like yeah. that and they they really did a lot of that early pioneering to get yellow um, you know to turn us from mustard tub to mustard missile yeah those those guys uh you mentioned those those names those guys were pretty senior guys too uh they, they would have been in their you know late 20s and stuff like that you look at not now it's a pretty, pretty young sport but uh, those guys stuck it out for you know well into their their their, their 30s <laughs> So well, are... Dennis Dermis is still racing, you know. So uh, when I had I had them all up in Alaska in '94 for our, um, you know, our, our early season testing testing before um, Spirit Mountain, I called them Team 24 because Dennis Dermis, Tony Heikinen, Todd Wolf, Corey Conquest, they were all 24. Oh yeah. yeah. Okay, and you mentioned. Um, um... You know your your tech vest getting uh, some great publicity. Would it be safe to say that probably the 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 really the the, the incident that uh, really you know opened everybody's eyes to the to the tech vest was uh, I'm not sure what year it was, but uh, one of the first er, the earliest X Games Winter X Games, uh, which is going on this week too. Uh, to think of it, um, but um, the tech vest got some uh, TV exposure when uh, Jason Jones uh, uh, got landed on. Um, by by another by another snowmobile and um, and um, you know that that tech vest uh, certainly saved uh, you know him from uh, serious injuries and uh, I think that's probably the first real exposure that everybody got to this vest. Yeah, that would be 1998, and uh, it was um, got immediate uh, attention and. And I found out about it because his father phoned me from the hotel room to say thanks. Uh, you know, basically they thought that it saved his life. And of course, um, he had uh, you know a camera mounted on his hood, shooting back up to you know, the handlebar area and catching him in his helmet. And so it was very dramatic footage to see Dave Brown. Of course, he picked on or the or the largest guy in the circuit, Dave Brown, riding the Polaris, uh, happened to be the guy that landed on him. Uh, it was it, it's still. Uh, quite uh, you know exciting footage to watch and you just you just uh, Google uh, YouTube video Jason Jones it'll it still pops I guess it's yeah. one of, still one of ESPN's you know top clips that they keep replaying yeah, yeah. but uh, yeah that that really gave us uh, you know big 
big major profile. But, you know, my goal from the beginning was to obviously get in the door through racing and learn from it. And we had a passion for racing. Both my boys have been racing since they were age five, you know, in the CSRA. And it's all, you know, it's part of the family DNA. But to make the business uh, justifiable, you know, you can't make money to selling to 10,000 racers, but there's 2 million trail riders out there. So right from the get-go, you know, my goal was to create a product that, that could be used by trail riders. Trail riding is a lot more dangerous than racing. I mean, think of it, you know, two sleds. Nowadays, you know, uh, 140 to 170 horsepower, uh, two-way traffic and a 10-foot trail corridor. I mean, uh, it's a recipe for disaster, uh, you know, when it happens. Um, well, I, I, I remember because uh, um, in, in, in the early years of, of TechFest, I, I was wearing actually one of your racing TechFest. I would always, because I was... You know, obviously testing testing snowmobiles for Snowboard Canada and stuff like that. I, I was I was I was using the the race vest for a number of years before you you mentioned the the uh, the trail vest came out and um, you know that, that that was a fantastic idea I, and I think I got I got to hand it to you well, I think you know to this very day I think I've probably ridden a snowmobile since then I, it, it would it would certainly be less than a handful of times without a tech vest you know so all all those years uh, you know thirty some odd years. Uh, I've uh, I've been wear, I've been wearing uh, you know uh, pr- protection and uh, you know the, the latter years uh, with the, with a tech vest and I haven't I, I I won't ride without it. So to talk to us about um, you know the uh, implementation of uh, of uh, the trail vest. Well, uh, they mentioned you know just moments ago trail riding is still the most dangerous thing that we do. Um, you know, there's lots of riders who will go their whole career and never fall off a sled. Um, but when it does happen, it can it can it can go sideways pretty quick. Uh, and um, you know, we've got two testimonials uh, um, this week from U.S. riders that have already had crashes this year. People don't think about safety in, until you know it's, they get their wake up call. Uh, you know, what's the cost of a day off work, a week or worse? Um, just sold a tech vest to a. Uh, an enduro guy, rider in Colorado, who started riding in the dirt just a couple of years ago, never wore any kind of protection. So he falls down on a Utah ride last fall, um, takes a hit to his uh, his uh, spleen area, uh, gets hauled to the hospital. He was there for two days. There was no surgery. Uh, he ended up uh, having a bruised spleen uh, the hospital bill was seventeen grand. Uh, his insurance deductible was five thousand. So I spoke to him just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, once he's getting ready to get back out on the bike and got a trip coming up, and, and you know, he basically at the end of the conversation, you know, if I'd spent four hundred fifty bucks back then, I I I wouldn't have had to shell out five grand for insurance and go through everything that I did. So. You know, his lesson was learned the hard way, and that's the case for most people. Um, our sport's dominated by, you know, white white males in their 40s that drive around in pickup trucks, and, you know, they've got the fastest sled. They're the best riders. They never fall off. It's always somebody else's issue and, until they get the wake-up call. So safety's a tough sell. Most people would rather spend 450 bucks uh, on go-fast parts or bling. Yeah, new suit. <laughs> um but uh, yeah, I, I, I find it erotic, ironic that uh, um, uh, you know people they'll yeah they'll they'll spend all the money on on a, a you know a, a nice carbon fiber helmet or you know a new new suit um, you know boots and you know very expensive helmet uh, you know um, sled 
but they don't think about um, <laughs> you know the, their internal organs. And um, you know, I, I I don't understand you know why people would wear a helmet and not not wear a tech vest myself. But uh, it's it's a, like you say it's a, it's a tough sell. Um, but uh, you know I, I I try to encourage people to uh, to wear the tech vest. Uh, and, and, and some people have actually uh, contacted myself. And uh, but I want to hear I want to hear about uh, you. How, how many emails and testimonies do you uh, do you get uh, in a year, or, or have you compiled them all? You know, over the, over the years. We 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 have hundreds hundreds of contacts per season with people who have been involved in an accident. Um, most of them uh, weren't wearing a tech vest, but. Now they are, as are their friends. So we grow our customers, it seems, one accident at a time. And, uh, you know, a group of 10 people, first guy shows up at a tech fest, and everybody wonders what's going on, a bit of ribbing, a bit of laughing. And, you know, after a couple of years, uh, you find the whole group wearing them. So it's it's growing slowly that way. Again, safety is a tough sell. Our, you know, the target snowmobiler. If airbags and seatbelts were optional in in their pickup trucks, they'd they'd probably not buy them. Um, so, in favor of you know better rims or a lift kit or you know some other blingy thing. That's hey, that's the nature of of the average snowmobiler. We get it. Um, we're not low hanging fruit for dealers to stop. Uh, safety is always a tough sell. Um, but once we get our customers, we we have our customers for life. Yeah, for sure. I, I think anybody that has, uh, you know, worn a tech vest uh, won't go back. You know, you, you, you get you get comfortable with it very quick. So talk talk about the, the construction of the tech vest. What do, what what goes into making one? Well, just before I get into that, you you raised the point. I'll respond to um, basically a, a tech vest. Yes, its primary highest duty is to be to be an impact uh, protector uh, in the time of need, but uh, you know, hopefully you'll never never use that. Uh, but it's a great windstopper and it's a great insulator. So it's part of your clothing package. It's a mid-layer product. So when you wear a tech vest, the first thing you'll notice is the wind bleed that comes through all other products is gone. And so you're cozier. So you can wear less outerwear, which is always better for flexibility and mobility. And, you know, the tech vest actually, once it molds into your body, which doesn't take very long, it, you know, it just becomes second skin. So there are lots of stories of people who, you know, forget their tech vest, go out for a ride and feel, feel so, so weird that they go back and get it. So, um, you know, it's, it's more than just impact protection. Yeah, I, mean, I, I find it very handy for, for when I carry, uh, you know, you know up, up to 50 pounds of camera gear, too. <laughs> There's nothing like having that vest, that vest on to help you support uh uh, your 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 body for uh, for carrying uh, you know, all, all that equipment, whether and, and you know tour people touring could also uh, benefit from that from carrying their uh, their overnight gear and, and and stuff like that. Mountain riders uh, they carry gear uh, also on their uh, on, on their other on their bodies, and uh, so Tech Vest is, is is a great supportive product uh, for uh, for your clothing. Well, as you point out, it's what what we call in the business is a load bearing product, and basically our design suspends off the shoulders so that there is not a requirement for uh, massive amounts of friction in the in the, the core body area that you have to do with what I call the friction suits, like the six six one pressure suits, where there's lots of friction to keep them in place, and then friction traps heat and creates chafing. So our, our stuff's very comfortable. We we cover more area than anybody else, uh, but it's also very very comfortable because of the design uh, that that, uh, that we've, we've created. Yeah. So, so talk 
about the construction of, of uh, the tech vest. Uh, what goes into uh, making one? Well, the, 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 the Cadbury secret, I guess, is, is the armor componentry, and it's all hand laminated so that I can use, I can keep the product very thin, but still have the performance there. And basically, we, we hand laminate uh, vinyl nitrile uh, foam, which is of the highest quality for uh, impact energy absorption that, that will work in, in the cold conditions that, that we have to, to, to thrive in. And we laminate it to uh, the UHMW high molecular weight plastic, which gives us the, um, the scratch, the impact protection from things like branches and studs. So it's that it's that dual lamination that that uh, you know has has worked well for us uh, you know since day one. And every time I look at you know some fancier newer technologies out there, I I keep going back to to what we've had. Yeah, I could get some cheaper stuff done in a coal molded kind of thing, but our 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 recipe works. So you know if the wheel's uh, not broken, uh, you know don't fix it, so to speak. So we concentrate on on uh, color styles and and now we're moving into sublimation where, where people will be able to custom order their own um, color designs and, and and personalize it but i, I don't uh, foresee us changing from our basic armor formula because it just works so well yeah and 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 i have to add it, it's very durable i've had i've had mine for uh for many years and uh, they just don't wear out you know so that, that's another reason why uh, these people you know they, they need to realize that this this is one. This is one accessory that they're gonna they're gonna own probably longer than their helmet. That's that's gonna last. <laughs> well, it's it's my curse because you know uh, my attention to detail. Uh, basically, uh, I'm I don't want any warranty situations because those are dissatisfiers for customers, for 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 distributors and dealers. Um, it's just my way of doing things. It's my military spec thing. We don't want to have products that. Uh, come out of the oven and, you know, we know we're going to fail, you know, at some point in time. So we've decided to keep making them right here in Canada and Minden, you know, three hours north of Toronto. Um, every time I've gone offshore, I've been three times now, I've been ambushed with poor quality. Uh, companies go overseas to um, reduce price, increase margins, and, and uh, rarely to improve products. So we consciously go out and source all of our our, our componentry here in North America. My my foam and, and uh, vinyl nitrile foam and UH comes from the U.S. My zippers are Montreal. I could save I could save nickels and dimes by going overseas, but uh, they'll result in failures, um, which we don't. Our product only has one chance to work right because we're in the safety business, so we take we take that very seriously. You know, and I have a family motto. I, you know, I'm not going to put something on the backs of my two sons who have raced, and both of them are not strangers to serious injury. But uh, you know, I got to make sure that I keep them as safe as possible, and that's that's you know, part of the DNA and the raison d'etre the way the tech vests have been developed and the way they perform. I mean, I've got customers. I had one the other day. He's had it since 1998. So, And since then, he's had probably a dozen pairs of boots. He's had half a dozen suits, and he's had a half a dozen helmets and a dozen gloves. But he's still got his original tech vest. I, I, I wish I could figure out something where, you know, after after three years and if it was motionless in a closet in the middle of July, it would disintegrate, but uh, haven't been able to find it out yet. So 
you know, we just have to work with with what we have and rely on our reputation, which you know is for high quality, durability, and performance. Yeah. So, um, other than the, 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 the tech vest, um, you um, you uh, started manufacturing uh, suits um, in a, a few years ago. Um, high quality suits. To, to this day, I still I still uh, I still wear that suit. It's it, it is my favorite suit. Um, just because it, it, it fits the tech vest so well, and, it, and it's got uh, options in it that you, you, you won't find in most uh, current uh, suits with, with you know, venting and, um, and basically movability. Um, what, what's, what's going on with the, uh, the PTG uh, line? Well, the Power Touring Gear line, we started developing it. Actually, the, the first, uh, it, it started and I built it for, for Todd Wolf, 96-97. Uh, Todd won the I-500 on our pant. A pant was the first product because we, we wanted to have um, an articulated knee and an articulated butt so that in, in the seating uh, position, we got rid of the tension points in the butt and especially on the knees. And uh, that uh, morphed into a, a touring pant, which, you know, we've got customers still running those things. Uh, in in '06. We had 05, we launched it uh, with a local distributor for a bit, but it didn't take on because, you know, uh, snowmobilers, you know, 10 years ago weren't prepared to spend, you know, 1000 bucks on a suit and a jacket. Uh, they were still quite comfortable going in for a $99 suit at Canadian Tire. Um, you know, while they spent while, while they spent 5000 bucks on pulling go-fast parts on their sled. So it, it's taken a while for technical outerwear to catch on. Rima started... Uh, that uh, you know, a dozen years ago, 15 years ago, almost 20 actually, in technical outerwear, and then Klein picked up the the the, uh, the lead and uh, you know for producing high-end stuff. So the market's changed, and we know that. So we're getting uh, people who've been riding our pants for 10 or so years are saying they finally feel so guilty they'd like to upgrade, or or or, or, or they've put on weight, or in some cases actually lost weight. So. We, we've been encouraged to get back into power touring gear, so we've uh, worked up some design uh, improvements to find that the, the base base product still works good, um, but we're going to bring it up to 2015 specs, and, and I'll, we'll be uh, releasing limited build power touring gear this fall. It'll be custom order. It'll be factory direct. Um, we'll be working with a couple of dealers who have really been encouraging me to get back in. And uh, you know we'll we'll we're, we're going to get back into it. We won't be the biggest. Uh, don't want to be because uh, the cost of being big is is uh, in my experience is a, is a reduction in quality, and we're we're not going to do that. Uh, you know, one of our our slogans has been no compromise, and you know I'm going to stick to that. There's there's more than enough people out there who are prepared to to pay um, you know a, a good dollar for a good quality product, and and uh, we we. We see that opportunity, so we, you'll 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 see and you'll hear and you'll read more about it. We've basically for ten years we've been at capacity here, so I've done no advertising, no promotion, and that sort of thing. Um, but we're we're going to change that uh, in in 2015, correction, 2016, which is uh, our 20th anniversary. Great, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what you uh, you uh, got you come up with. Uh, uh, love love that love that suit, the power touring uh, suit. Uh, so where where can people purchase your uh, your products now your um, your uh, your tech vest and uh, what the what, what um, 
Well, uh, a TechFest um, is available through any established dealer. They can get it through in the U.S. or Canada. They can get it through uh, you know, well-known distributors like Western Power Sports, Parts Unlimited, Automatic, uh, Gamma Sales. Um, also, we we build OE, uh, so uh, we build a original equipment manufacturer. We co-brand and build a TechFest for for Climb, for 509, uh, for Sled Diva, the ladies' gear. Uh, we also build for Arctic Cat, uh, Polaris, uh, Yamaha, and uh, we'll be back in Skidoo's catalog here in a couple of weeks. So, you know, basically that probably covers 99.9% of the dealers in North America. So it, uh, some of the models are available there. Or um, we, you can go online if you can't find a product because most dealers don't stock our stuff and, and you want to buy direct from us, uh, you'll be able to. To, to dial in, we have a new website that's launching here shortly. Um, so, and, and with our custom program, you'll be able to have some options on color and, and uh, sublimation. I mean, if you email me your favorite photo of a snowmobile in action, snowmobile scene shot, whatever, uh, I can actually reproduce that on on a tech fest. Uh, you know, for somebody who really wants to uh, have something that's memorable. Fantastic. Okay, you know, uh, price range. What, what what are we looking at uh, for 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 price ranges from uh, the uh, in your in your trail uh, lineup? Yeah, our, um, the retail is uh, is Canadian is is three hundred to five hundred dollars in that zone. We have uh, about uh, six to eight options for for various riders. We have a specialized line now across over in the outback for the backcountry mountain riders, the guys who want to wear. Uh, packs, AVI packs, big weight. So we've got one specifically designed for for those folks. And then for our sit down, you know, Eastern style touring, we've got three models. So there's something for everybody there. And all they need to do is is uh, ping me. Our old website's still floundering around out there. But when the new website comes, it's easy. But anybody can get a hold of me, Steve at TechRider.com. I I spend most of my days talking to uh, customers. I get you know it's very interesting. Um, conversations and I learn a lot from those personal contacts like we're, we're a small company but we have a big heart and we want to we want to talk to people yeah yeah that's, uh, that's fantastic um and, and like I said you know you know three three four hundred dollars is, is small change compared to to how, how long the product lasts uh people should remember that uh you know like you mentioned uh, you can go through helmets boots suits sleds and wives uh you know uh but uh, your you know your your tech vest will last a much longer well, as I said earlier, it only has to work once to pay for itself. So, you know, it's a smart investment. I mean, you wouldn't send your kids out to play hockey or football without full protection. So why do we get on, you know, 150-horsepower trail missiles and, you know, going a 10-foot quarter with two-way traffic with nothing more than a helmet? It just it doesn't make sense. And Canadians take, you know, we've got great health care here, so, you know, Canadians aren't really cognizant of, of the hospital costs involved with, uh, you know, post-accident surgeries and care. But our American customers are acutely aware of the costs. And, you know, there's, you know, no shortage of, of uh, stories about people going bankrupt over injuries in healthcare in the States. So the Americans' uh, population gets it more so than the Canadians. But, you know, we still haven't even reached 5% of the market. I mean, there's, I still... I bumped into a couple of snowmobilers here at Christmas time who had brand new sleds, and neither of them had ever heard about TechFest. So, 
so there's lots of uh, lots of upside growth for us in the, the next five uh, years. Uh, we're going to see uh, um, a big increase in our efforts, and, and we know that the, the growth will follow. What's your model? If you have to be, if you got to be somewhere Monday morning, maybe you should be thinking about a tech fest. Absolutely, yeah, and I, you know, I think everybody can relate to that. Uh, you know, everybody has to. Everybody has a job, and they have to be someplace Monday morning. And uh, I, I, I keep remembering that. <laughs> that, that that's a that's a brilliant slogan. <laughs> you know, you know what? I, I came up with that in '96, '97, because we. I knew I had the soft sell safety because of our, you know, typical market guy who. Is the best rider has the best sled and never falls off. So we had to sort of soft sell it, and, and the Monday morning theme was good. And I actually dropped the Monday morning theme. You know, I've got a marketing background, and a lot of companies will say, "Hey, you got to freshen up your slogan, change things every three or five years, or whatever the product cycle is." And I got away from it, and customers noted that. So we brought it back in. So it's it's going to be permanently there. And it, we, all we want to do is, is all we can do is is have a you know, a sledder, uh, you know, just think about it. Um, eventually they get the wake-up call and then they'll remember TechFest, and that's generally where most of our sales come from. Yeah, I know you, you got a, you got a current uh, commercial on uh, on the ISOC uh, uh, live stream uh, with it with Tucker, and uh, he brings that, that very slogan up uh, in, in that commercial. And uh, it's true, he's got a family, and, uh, you know, he has, to, he has to be someplace Monday too, so... Yeah, just from the from the top to top guy, and let's let's uh, let's hope he pulls off another medal uh, at, the, at the at the X Games and Deadwood's coming up, and hopefully he'll get his hundredth pro win. I mean, he's he's been a great rider, a great ambassador, and you know I've worked with hundreds, thousands of racers in motorcycles and snowmobiles, and you know he's definitely one of the most professional and one of the. Uh, obviously, fastest guy in Queen. I mean, very rarely does he ever take anybody out. And I, I, that's not the same. I can I can't say the same thing for some previous champions who uh, were, were were quite good at uh, uh, block passing in order to get to the front. Uh, Tucker is uh, one of the smoothest, cleanest riders I've I've seen on a track. And it reminds me a lot of Todd Wolf. Todd Wolf was the same way, and uh, you know. Could come through the pack and pass somebody cleanly, so it's it's nice to see, uh, nice to watch them racing, and I mean, and all the doubters who uh, you know want to boo him from the sidelines and say it's not, you know, he's still not the fastest guy. You just have to watch when last couple of races this this year, even when you know he fell off and you know ended up eighth in the final and then passed everybody in five laps. I mean, he's still the man. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's great. I guess it would be uh, pretty safe to uh, to say that uh, every every competitor uh, competing at the X Games uh, would have to have a tech vest on, correct? Uh, no, there's a couple other manufacturers out there, um, so you know that, that's fine. Uh, they're all wearing something, and they all know who we are, and we're still there. I mean, I can't expect to have 100% market share. Mm. Uh, that would be a that would be uh, unreasonable. So it shows you a market that's not big enough and some, one company dominates. So uh, we, we expect our efforts will, will increase sales and there'll be other competitors and we invite comparison. Um, you know, all our competitors so far have come up from offshore and I know of one where I, I bought one and, and the buckle failed right out of the bag as I was taking it out. So, you know, we can't afford to do that. We use our subcomponents are our top-notch stuff, and we we actually over-engineer it for performance and for durability. So uh, I, I doubt that, uh, you know, there's always somebody who can 
try and copy us, but we're we're going to work hard at you know our, our attention to detail and, and make sure that we don't sacrifice our reputation and product quality. Yeah. Oh, great. Okay, great. Um, that's a, the, the the tech vest part of it, but you have a you have a a, a trip coming up. Um, you want to talk about that? Yeah, I'm 60 on board, and yeah, so I'm leave next Friday from here in Minden, and I'm going to run the I-500 cross-country race, which I did the Winnipeg-St. Paul in 77 on a liquidator. I did it in 91 on an MXX, so I, I've entered this year, and I'm going to use the Yamaha Viper um, for, for the event. Yeah, but you're, you're not just leaving from Minden. You're, you're riding from Minden to Winnipeg. On, on yeah, well, <laughs> s- snow permitting, uh, yeah, the plan is I'll be leaving next Friday, and um, we're going to snowmobile out to Winnipeg and uh, do the race and then, then come back. So, yeah, i got to pound some miles on, and uh, this this will let me focus for 21 days. And uh, I'll be hooking up with a lot of uh, old friends and some industry VIPs along the way, and yeah, it's a good time. It's like a three-week uh, holiday, you know. It changes as good as the rest. So, yeah, I'm quite excited. Plus, I'm going to stay with with my son Jeff for, well, because the I-500 format was supposed to be Winnipeg to Wilmar, but there's so little snow at the south end that now it's Winnipeg to Thief River Falls, and instead of four days, it's three days with day two and day three being loops out of Thief River Falls. So, I get to to stay at my son's house, and, and this has never happened because he just left the nest, uh, you know, a couple of years ago. And, and I'm used to him and his buddies blowing into my place here and having their tornado and leaving with me, uh, everything to do. So I'm looking forward to staying at Jeff's house for yeah, four so he, days. Jeff is Jeff is a a, a calibration engineer for Articat. Yeah, like some would say, it's kind of a dream job, including his old man. But uh, Jeff. Um, and his brother, younger brother Kevin, uh, decided to become engineers. Jeff graduated five-year automotive at UOIT in Oshawa uh, two years ago. Put his resumes out. Wasn't really excited about going to the auto world in Detroit, where most of his buddies went, and uh, put an application into Arctic and had the interview. And he's moved out to Sea River Falls uh, two years ago, and he was employed as a he is employed as a snowmobile calibration engineer. So, like, hey. He's, I've sent him to Japan to the mountains. He's he's, he's living the life. Uh, you know, and Arctic has a real passion for for their products, as you know. And the marriage with Yamaha is going to be is already very beneficial to them. They're going to build more and bigger and better sleds. And you know, Jeff's Jeff's getting to be part of that right now uh, in the development. And so they have always wanted, always been have been known for. Riding engineers, you know, you've got Brian Dick, a little back to Roger Skyam, uh, Kirk Herbert, Joey Hallstrom. All those guys have significant race time. And, um, you know, what helped Jeff's resume is the fact he's been racing since age five at the CSRA and comes from a small town and is used to cold weather, races dirt bikes. And, you know, he, he got to semi-pro, pro-light level here. And, you know, he could probably make a pro final, but he wouldn't win. But all of that seat time uh, made his resume even stronger, and now it's paid off for him. Uh, with, you know, it's a great job. So he's he's busy out there in Thief, and he bought his own dirt bike, bought his own truck. Uh, it's great <laughs> to kick him out of the nest at some point in time. He's racing on the local uh, enduro cross country dirt bike circuit there. 
I'm trying to get him to run the I-500, but he's still a snowcrosser at heart and doesn't think he can do it. I, I, I doubt that he was a, he was a good uh, like I said, he was a good snowcross racer. Uh, seen him seen him many many times. So uh, and uh, and Jeff too. So uh, so I, I suspect you're going to be trying out some uh, some ideas uh, for uh, your li- your upcoming lineup too on on, on this trip. You're going to be putting lots of miles on. Uh, um, you're going to be you know thinking of some uh, some ideas uh, for your upcoming uh, lineup. Oh yeah, well my my goal has always been to try and put 5,000 miles on something before I release it. 5,000 miles represents about three consumer years with the average consumer doing 1,500 miles a year. So I, I need to see how the product's going to look in three years' time. So that's why it's always a 5,000-mile goal for me. This trip's 3,500 miles, um, you know, so I'll, I'll plenty of time to bang on another 2,000, uh, you know, when I get home and all spring conditions. I might have to move move east to find snow, you know, Gas Bay or New Brunswick. Um, but, you know, it's going to be a 5,000-mile year before I can, you know, release some of the stuff we're, that, that we're, we're going to ex- test on this trip. And uh, we'll probably start to expose a little bit in the so- social media world. So. Expectations for the I-500. What, uh, what are you looking for? Um, I just want, I just want to finish. Um, I run in the master's class. There's lots of, that's 50 and over. I'm 60. There's tons of guys who are faster than me. So I'm just going to rely on, on, uh, on, on stealth, stealth and wisdom to bring up the rear. And I'll probably put a back rack and pack in there and I'll just pick up any saleable pieces that other guys have dropped because, you know, the I-500 Winnipeg history is generally half the field disappears every day. That, that rule is applied for decades and it's probably going to uh, apply again this year. So um, I'll do my best to, to just, just to, to stay ahead. I'm, I'm not really comfortable in high speed ditch stuff. I prefer the woods, but uh, it is what it is. It's the same for everybody. And, I'll uh, I'll uh, take it in stride. Yeah, well, that's fantastic. Well, I think uh, I think we we got uh, just about uh, everything off you, Steve. Um, where can people contact you uh, and your and your website address? Well, just techwriter.com or techvest.com and Steve at techwriter.com. Um, I'm generally pretty quick at getting back to you, and I've you know for the first time in in the history of the company, I actually now have a sales and marketing assistant who's a, a real up-and-comer hard charger by the name of Emily Head um, from Port Perry. So she's you know, considered to be local. Um, you know, huge DNA, racing DNA with her, her mom and her dad. Her dad was six days rider, uh, dirt bikes, and her mom was a well-known superbike racer in the 80s, uh, Kathleen Colburn. And uh, so Emily's... Um, applied for a job and um, she started three weeks ago so she's going to be my left and right hand lady so to speak and she's an active uh, motocross enduro rider and a snowmobiler so she's you know she's uh, smelled the race fuel and and sweated it out on racetracks and she's also a, a survivor from serious injury she broke her back in seven spots at a motocross race so and then she bought a tech fest, and that's how we got to know her. And uh, next thing you know, she's now, uh, um, you know, my my daily point of contact at Tech Writer. So, you know, Emily uh, will increasingly be uh, involved, and she's already up to speed because she's already a, a crash survivor and, and a tech fest uh, 
a user herself. So you know, that, that's the kind of people we like to have around. My two boys, Kevin and, and Jeff, are still helping me out with development projects on their own as well. So, uh, you know, we've we got to make sure that the people at the front end of the company who talk to the public have, you know, have uh, smelled their ace fuel and, uh, um, you know, have, have put laps and miles on and kind of know the sport. That makes it easier for them now that them to talk about tech fest. My two boys are no stranger to injuries, Jeff. You know, uh, had a nasty one in Barry there a couple years ago with a whiplash and broke his upper femur. He's got titanium souvenirs for life now. And Kevin broke his back and uh, up in Naranda a couple years back. So they both bounced back from it. Um, they're better riders as a result of it. Uh, we'd prefer them not to have been in the hospital, but hey, that's uh, all part of racing. Yeah, yeah. Um at uh, Tech Rider. Yeah, Gord, well, thanks for asking, because without them, uh, you know, nothing would be, would have happened. And, uh, of course, it's, you know, today's interview has been all about me, but, you know, there's a bunch of people that, that uh, I need to thank, and, you know, they include my, my production team, which, you know, several of them have been with me almost 15 years. And, uh, you know, without them, we wouldn't be producing consistent, high-quality product. Uh, I'm, I'm uh, very grateful for all their service. You know, going back to the, the very beginning, of course, uh, you know, it's a Lennon and McCartney kind of composition. My longtime designer, Helmut Seepman, has uh, been with me since day one. We, we did all this development work back in 95, 96, and, you know, without Helm's uh, support and technical expertise, uh, you know, our product wouldn't be as well as it, well as it does. I really owe him a big big thanks. Uh, as do, uh, do I owe big thanks to, to Nancy, who's my, my former wife and the mother of our two sons, Kevin and Jeff. She was there from the beginning and basically was a you know co-owner for many years and is still involved behind the scenes. And, you know, uh, her, her participation allowed us to get the two boys racing at age five and be part of the, of the experience. Uh, other industry types, uh, personal friends who've helped me have in the early development test riding where you know, Bill Fullerton was involved, uh, Chris Ellis, and uh, my longtime uh, buddy, Ross Lennox, who's still one of the fastest, smoothest riders I'll, I've ever met. So it's, uh, you know, the team's only as strong as uh, individual members, and I'm very thankful for all their participation. Yeah, and uh, and you have some of the best test riders in the business with uh the uh, the racers and, uh, and and now the trail riders uh, giving you input on your into your uh, into your product uh, so you have uh, you have a great team behind you yeah and without those customers of course uh, we wouldn't be anywhere so you know I'm very appreciative of them and we get we get lots of phone calls from them and just generally thank thanking us uh, for uh, for protecting them in, uh, in their time of need yeah yeah for sure you know it's, uh, I, I I encourage all my friends to uh, to use uh, the product that uh, it makes total sense it'll uh, It'll extend your riding career for sure, as, as it has uh, many of uh, racers and, uh, and trail riders, and uh, make this uh, sport uh, much more enjoyable. And and I might add motorcycling too. Uh, you do uh, you do a lot of uh, motorcycle vests too, um, so I'm sure uh, uh, motorcyclists are appreciative of this product too. And uh, so, Steve, uh, thank you very much for uh, this conversation today, and I uh, wish you uh, luck and and uh, a great race at the, the I-500. Uh, uh, I wish I was out there with you, and uh, we'll be looking for you at the top of the box at uh, in the Masters class. <laughs> okay, thanks, Gart. Okay, take care. Thank you. Bye. 
And this concludes our conversation with uh, Steve Brand from uh, TechRider. Hope you enjoyed it. Remember, you can uh, follow us on uh, Facebook, Snowmobiling Podcast Facebook page. All our episodes are on there and some other things that I post up uh, up there regularly uh, through, uh, through my own writing. And um, on uh, iTunes, you can follow us on iTunes. All you do is click uh, subscribe on iTunes and all the pod- podcasts are on there. Um, they're all archived. Remember, you can uh, download them to your smart device and uh, play them over uh, over your car stereo or your truck stereo or airplane or whatever. They're not streamed, so uh, they are downloadable and they're just uh, in there with uh, your uh, your media, your uh, your songs and your videos and stuff like that. So uh, it's uh, very easy. And you can also follow us on SoundCloud. The same thing. If you follow us, all the episodes are on there. And again, you can download them. And we're on Twitter too, Snowbling Podcast on Twitter. So until next time, this is Gordavan. Talk to you later.